Race matters. 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 Acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land right now. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long, long after us. This land has been a meeting place for sharing knowledge, for sharing stories and song. We do that every day here at FBI Radio, and we're very privileged and very lucky and very thankful to be able to be doing that every day. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. This is Redfern that we're broadcasting from right now too. Redfern is a birthplace of black theatre in this country and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. And Darren, I remember having a conversation with you earlier this year, deep in the chaos of isolation, when we realised that we were both finding that we could really only connect with uh, content by and centering queer people of colour or queer people of colour's experiences. Yeah, I feel like that's something that we are always drawn to, but something about this year, I don't know, like, I feel like we needed that comfort more than ever. There's something quite centering and grounding about, you know, acknowledging, engaging with, embracing, taking on these ideas and the art and creativity that is being made by people like us. There's something so... Yeah, comforting, but there's no other word for it. It felt like comfort. It felt like food, you know? Exactly, yeah. I've been reflecting over the past little bit to try and figure out why I felt so comforted by and drawn to this kind of content, and we're going to be unpacking that a little later on in the show. Yeah, and we're also going to be chatting about some of the said content that we've been loving, some recent, some a little bit older. In other news, it's kind of award season I at the moment. I guess. <laughs> I guess the Arias are coming I out. mean, the Walkleys were, the Walkleys I think, happened, yesterday. Yeah. Um, yep, and the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia had their awards, uh, just kind of, it's been rolling out over the last couple of weeks and we were nominated for a couple of awards this year and we actually won one for Excellence in Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasting, which is, it's exciting, of course, to get sector recognition um, for this show that we've been working really hard on over the last three-ish years, um, but especially, obviously, this year, it's been a lot. It's been, you know, one of the most rewarding things I've done all year, for sure. This show has really crystallised a lot. Um, you know, not to make it about us, because, you know, the show is only as good as the guests that we get on the show, but often times I find myself thinking, oh, I really have learned something from, from this person that's come on the show. You know, this show's taught... Me and I know a lot of people who listen to the show who have told me have learned a lot from the show as well. 100%. Yeah, I find myself like often, you know, remembering a segment of a conversation that was had and having to go and listen back. And mm. that's a, 
amazing thing for these conversations to have a home here on Race Matters. Um, but I thought we should also shout out all of the other people who were nominated um, for this category in particular, because I know when the nominations came out, Darren, you, me and Sarah were all uh, felt a little bit mixed about mm. being nominated in this category and shortlisted um, because... Ethnic and multicultural broadcasting is firstly a very, very broad term, um, but to me it kind of speaks to some of the more specific shows that are out there for very specific subsections of communities. And, you know, that's something that community radio is all about. Oh, there are absolutely. These, like amazing radio stations that have been going for so long that are particularly for communities that are completely yeah. erased from quote-unquote mainstream media. By the very virtue of language, you know, like radio shows in language are something so rare um, in a radio um, ecosystem that for them to be acknowledged is a huge thing. Exactly right. And, you know, like obviously there's uh, SBS as the Mm. national kind of broadcaster that does try and um, address different languages in different parts of the community, but uh, people being able to run their own radio Mm. stations and have their own content, um, it's really huge and so important. So uh, shout out to to NURFM uh, who were nominated for the Macedonian program hosted by Peter Vrakovsky. Sin Media were nominated for Culture Cult. Triple H 100.1 FM were nominated for Radio Tugumpai. Kuru Radio, uh, obviously Sarah Khan who hosts Brecky over there, uh, but they had a different show nominated. It was Fiji Australian Voice of the Community and two other DJ 88.1 FM was nominated for Sandigan Radio. Um, Really, really amazing category to even be a part of. And all of those shows are doing such important things for, you know, the communities that they broadcast to. And uh, I guess Race Matters also has a community that we broadcast to and maybe that community is a little bit uh, more broad in that we're speaking to all people of colour or people mm. who were marginalised by white supremacy. Um, but, yeah, it, it's nice to be acknowledged. <laughs> it is. So thank you, CBAA. We and appreciate it. We do appreciate it. And I also, while we're speaking about the CBAA, they had a conference um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, their annual conference, and this year I think they go biannually um, and kind of do a research stream so there were a lot of panels Um, it was all happening over Zoom and there was one really really amazing talk that you know the community radio sector as we mentioned is home to a lot of um, really incredible and important programs that kind of talk about uh, different ethnic and multicultural communities and are by and for those communities but Overwhelmingly, it's very white, as much of the media in this country is. Um, And they had programmed this talk called Decentering White Privilege, Decolonizing and Diversifying the Airwaves, which was a panel discussion with Nicola Joseph, Priya Kunjan, Catherine Little and Arij Noor. And it was so, so good, especially amidst a conference that, yeah, was basically, apart from this talk, completely white Mm. like there were barely any people of color on any of the panels and sometimes it's annoying when in a festival or a conference like this the only panel that you see people of color on is the panel about about race yeah yeah um however i think it was a really important and like 
I'm sure some of the people who are like higher up in the community radio world were pretty shaken by this talk. It was very powerful. There was a lot of reflection on the work that is being done, of course, acknowledging that, but more importantly, looking towards the work that still needs to take place to decolonize the sector. And yeah, I'm hoping that this conversation is just the first of more that is happening like within the industry and the sector because it it needs to happen. But I feel like also on the positive side, things are changing and things are advancing, which is great. You are listening to Race Matters right now with Darren Lasagas and Tanya Ali. Up next, we're going to talk about why we found so much comfort in things... TV shows, songs, movies made by queer people of colour in the past year, let alone our entire lives, but definitely in the past year. But let's take this first from Frank Ocean, king of sexual ambiguity, allowing queer people to project their own queerness into his music without knowing whether he is gay or bi or whatever. He doesn't need it. Thank you, He doesn't Frank. need it. Forrest Gump. Come on, come on. My fingertips... And my lips, they burn from the cigarettes Forrest Gump, you run my mind, boy Running on my mind, boy Forrest Gump you are listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. And there was a point this year where I realised that I was just finding it physically impossible to connect with any media that was not by queer people of okay, colour. Okay, why hate straight people so much? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I've always been especially drawn to content that I can see myself in, but I've never felt a, like, specific pull like this before, and I've been trying to reflect on why that may be. You've kind of felt the same this year, right, Darren? Yeah, I felt the same. I don't know if I felt it to the same intensity as you, because I've been definitely consuming some questionable stuff in the past year, but definitely <laughs> the stuff that's resonated with me the most, um, especially in this trying collective trauma that we've been enduring for the past nine or so months has been, yeah, as you said, stories made by queer people of colour in which I can see a semblance of myself, whether it's me entirely or one experience that I've had projected back at me in a podcast, in a movie, in a film, in a song. Um, I found extreme comfort in, in the face of the chaos of this year. Yeah, 100%. I think... Most recently, I realised that maybe what I needed and honestly still need amidst the world imploding and everything feeling very uncertain and unstable is confirmation that, like, my existence isn't wrong. Um, I feel like it makes me think about the overused saying, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. Um, I overall disagree with that saying because as people of colour, as queer people of colour, we're constantly having to imagine and realise futures that maybe haven't existed before us. We talk about that so much on the show and we're going to talk about representation a little bit more later, but representation can only do so much. It can't really affect our actuality and like what's going on in our Worlds, But at the same time, there is this endless comfort um, that I feel when consuming queer POC content um, and also talking to queer friends of colour like you, Darren. Like, oh. <laughs> there's this, you know, exceptional level of mutual understanding and I think this comfort that isn't often spoken about 
uh, that comes with being able to have conversations and know that you don't have to explain anything further. Like there's yeah. no further explanation required. The other person just gets what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I felt similarly in that I could feel it secondhand from your conversation with Akenyo earlier this year. And when we talk about, you know, we never we we didn't always have the representation we needed to model ourselves um after so we kind of looked more immediately we looked to our peers we looked to our closer uh familial you know relationships to to mold this idea of what it means to be who we are which at the end of the day you know what does it mean to be a queer person of color it's going to be different for everyone and it's going to be vastly different because we're all taking cues we're all taking pointers from places that we wouldn't normally do if we were you know white you know, people. Exactly. Oh, I was going to say white people of color. No, queer <laughs> white people. Because um, there's so much of that um, out there already, which, to be honest, it probably is to their detriment because who are these, you know, representations of queerness made by? Anyway, we're going to touch that later. But, yes, this idea of um, imagining the reality of what it what it uh, of what it means to be queer for us in the future as opposed to fantasy, which I feel like is a, a nuance that we have to consider like there are fantasies of what it, what we've been told and what we expect our lives to be now and in the future and there is also an imagined reality and i think they need to be kind of interrogated in ways that we're constantly learning and i think consuming all this culture consuming all these um pieces of art that queer people of color have made in the past nine months in a time in which we're all reckoning with us, with ourselves and with the world around us is such a formative time. It's like coming out again or something. It fully is. And I also think, like, there's a difference there between fiction and, like, conversations or nonfiction. Mm. Um, you know, you mentioned the conversation that I had with Akenyo. I was so shaken by that conversation. And I remember, like, that conversation also made me realise how much I appreciate our friendship mm. um, because of, like, the conversations that we're able to have all the time. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that because I felt exactly the same listening to your conversation with Kaiva. Oh, Kyle. Um, which just happened a couple of weeks ago. And it was, uh, yeah, there's a special kind of power with um, hearing about, like, feelings that you have experienced and that other people experience too that I think is not necessarily that present in fiction. And fiction has a whole other power as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, those conversations, we're going to talk a little bit more later about some um, queer friendships and it kind of reminds me of, like, the conversations that happened on Still Processing, the NYT mm. podcast um, between the two hosts that are just, like everyday conversations, living room conversations, um, but between two queer people of colour that we just don't really get to experience. Yeah, it just allows us to feel so incredibly seen and heard. And yeah, as you said before, tacitly and, you know, unconditionally understood. I think also the reality that, like, the content or the breadth of content um, is... There's not that much of it. Like, or maybe I'm just bad at finding it. I don't know. But I feel like I do seek it out pretty obsessively. Yeah. Uh, and it still feels quite rare to hit things that are, like, about 
queer people of colour, made by queer people of colour, and where the one queer person of colour, like, it's not just one. Mm. Um, it's, like, multiple people having different relationships and different friendships. Um, but there is a lot of it out there that I've recently found, I guess, and we've talked about Moonface, the podcast. Oh, um, broke my heart in pieces. Absolutely. And, you know, at the centre of it, sure, there was a relationship that was romantic, but there was also so much oh, about friendship so in much that podcast. Friendship. There's so much about friendship in that podcast between, um, yeah, three people of colour. And... Sorry, I won't spoil it. We've talked about it on a whole episode. But, yeah, his relationship with another Korean person, which you don't really get when it's first introduced, but it becomes so clear that they have, as I said before, this tacit understanding of each other. Exactly. Um, another piece of content that I want to talk about uh, was a very uh, specific ISO piece of content <laughs> um, because it's all like done over Zoom. Uh, you introduced me to it, Darren. I did. It's called Hello Stranger. Yes, it's a Filipino love story, um, which is published on YouTube um, as a like a, min- a web series, um, which centers around two characters who, as you can expect, fall in love during the time of COVID um, while they're at college over Zoom. (laughs) It's so good. It's so singular. It is very singular. Yeah, there's one story that they had to tell and that's the story that they tell throughout. But it is just so cute. Yeah, they kind of just fall into it out of circumstance. Um, All their classes are over Zoom. They've been paired up by the teacher because one of them is struggling class. The other one is the... The top student student in the class. And therefore, their relationship is forged in this, I don't want to work with this jock. And this jock (laughs) is like, why is this nerd so uptight? I need to loosen him up in a way. And then romance ensues. It blossoms, what can we say? Yeah. So it is a boys love series, um, which is this phenomena, which I'm not, you know, I admit I'm not completely tapped into. I haven't consumed, I've like watched um, Hello Stranger, I've watched snippets of other boys love series, but which have come to prominence over the past couple of decades, um, rising out of manga and anime and um, pushed forward by Thai um live I guess live action um, series in which it centers around the love of boys that they have for each other and they can be you know either wholesome and romantic and playful or they can be more homoerotic and more kind of sexually charged but at the core of it yeah is this boys love that's what it's called BL BL I had no idea about this phenomenon, but I am going to be doing so much reading about it because it's very interesting to me. Like, I think what struck me um, about Hello Stranger the most maybe was I feel like it's probably one of the only queer um, things or web series or TV shows that I've seen that doesn't have a Western lens at all. It's just Mm. it's set in the Philippines. like. It, there's white people do not factor into yeah, it there's in not any one way. White person in it. Well, most shows in the Philippines or like in Asia are like that, you know. Of course, yeah. yeah. But um, I guess the power of seeing that and queer representation within that that I found, even though it's like a bit fantastical, it's oh, like you got to watch more BL, romantic, Tanya. But yeah, I can't <laughs> wait. I'm honestly, this is the content I didn't even know I needed. Um, but you know, it's still at the core of it. I felt was quite 
a like plausible love story. Oh, like, yeah. You know, that happens. And, and like the there was a lot of nuance between their them falling in love. It didn't happen too fast. It was like mm. very much drawn out um, in a way that I thought was very queer. <laughs> it's so gay. Like, it is so gay. But it's 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 very it's quite cute. It's quite cute. Um, it has like a I want to say rabbit. You know, passionate following online, as most BL series do. It's um you know ship culture. You know, I'm kind of cringing just saying that. <laughs> you know, I read a lot of fan fiction as a young teen, and a lot of it was centered around these characters on TV who were you know straight, but brought into these worlds in which their queerness was abound, you know? And I feel like BL isn't, like, doesn't derive from that, but takes a similar kind of storytelling arc and a similar kind of expression of queerness that those kind of stories were written by probably teenagers like me. I didn't write them. I bet you did. <laughs> and I can't wait to find out more. We'll read them out Do not live. Google it. <laughs> oh, my God. No, there's nothing on there. <laughs> you are listening to Race Matters. You're with me, Daryl Osagas and Tanya Ali. And we're talking about content made by queer people of colour and what it's meant um, for us in the past nine months, nay, our entire lives. And I want to kind of touch a little bit further beyond that on what it means for representation. You know, we talk about the conversations we have with each other, but what does it mean when we see ourselves reflected back at us in popular culture and in the media? And I was listening to some old episodes of a podcast I um, like to go to for some touch points called Food for Thought, which I've talked about a lot on this show, but they just have some timeless conversations. And they have this episode, it was a couple of years ago, where they talk about representation. And they posit a few questions including when does bad representation devalue our mission? Is there such a thing as bad representation? And when does it move us along? When does bad representation move us along, if a little slowly? And these are interesting questions because I feel like we've been talking about how little there is in the way of representation for queer people of colour that our go-tos have been, you know, white, um, white people, um, white queer people and you know we can go down the path of the usual suspects you know will and grace what is that doing for us mm. really but in the grand scheme of things what did it do for queer people in general or you know I guess when you look at it critically it did a lot for gay men it did a lot for white cis able-bodied gay men who had money it shifted our perception of them from being um you know, the other to being more closer to what we see as, you know, the center or like the ordinary person. But what does it mean when that marginalizes people of color, trans people, not able-bodied people? You know, it's an interesting question to think about when you're looking at the stuff that you've been consuming and, you know, um, taking on as part of your, how you express your identity. Um, Glee is another one, which I feel like our generation, I mean, me included, not grew up with, but it was very present in our lives in a very big way. It was hugely popular. It was mainstream TV. Completely. And I feel like it um, kind of gave way to a lot of uh, younger people's, like, 
understandings of their own sexuality. Absolutely. And, you know, there was a lot of critique for it from queer people at the time saying, this isn't me, like, this is a representation, is a stereotype, which is kind of laced with homophobia because (laughs) if you're going to internalise your homophobia and strike out of the show because it has quite feminine gay men at its core representation of queerness, and you need to look at why you hate that. That's true. That's absolutely true. But also, I want to go back to something that you were talking about just then about like that kind of aspirational move from being on the margins to like moving queer representation into the center. Mm. I feel like that can sometimes be a problem, right? Because a big example that comes to mind is Modern Family oh, and yeah. that relationship. Obviously, yes, it's normalizing it, but why do we aspire to be straight essentially or like heteronormative like why why is that what is that the goal because Mm. surely it shouldn't be and it's like what needs to be done for you to get there you know at what cost are you becoming a more palatable version of yourself and it's like you're benefiting off your proximity to straightness and whiteness and if that makes you i mean like we're all kind of guilty of doing it because at the, at the end of the day it's also safety you know mm. if we if if our you know homophobic neighbors are watching the same show we're watching and they look at us and like oh you're not so bad then that is a step towards safety but at the end of the day like uh, again like at what cost Exactly. So going back to bad representation, like what do you think that actually means? Because there are so many different parts of queer representation and queer baiting is something that we haven't really touched on yet, but I feel like that comes into queer representation a lot. Like this idea of straight people, straight white people often um, writing queer characters into their, or not even queer characters, but writing characters who will appeal to queer audiences Mm. into their storylines, never really giving them anything, never giving them happiness, often killing them off. Yeah. Um, You know, what, what does that representation do for us? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. That's what sets us back. And it's, it kind of goes to my point of what I said about, um, Frank Ocean before, who is like the king of sexual ambiguity and that the way he writes songs is so considered and so kind of like self-aware that there is enough for people to project and see in them their own, their self, their queerness without having it kind of teased. You know, there's enough there. I don't know, I feel like it's hard to explain. There's enough for us to be like, this is a queer song without it being a queer song. Mm. And there are shows that do that, you know? There are, there's movies that do that without, without you know, you can kind of, you, you know, you're a, bit weird, you're a bit sus on it. Yeah. You know, you're like, why, why are you doing that? Mm. Like, I know this is going to end in some sort of trauma and you're only baiting us in for it. Totally. And it doesn't quite hit the spot in the yeah. same way that a uh, really like, well-considered representation would. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we're being drawn to watching things because, you know, it's about me and it's about people like me. And then when we critique things, is it because that comes from fact, like we're critiquing it based on this is incorrect? Or is it because what we're seeing is supposed to be us? is not like us, you know, like the the representation doesn't match who we how we see ourselves and therefore we want to destroy it, you know? Like glee. That's what I that's oh. what I used to do. That's what people do all the time. And it's like some people are Kurt Hummel. I'm sorry, but some people are. That's so And true. that is like that's a crass that's like kind of like a, an extreme example, but it's like just because that one isn't you doesn't mean 
it's not someone else. Well, and then that goes back to the burden of representation. Yeah. And this, you know, is beyond um, just queer content. It's also for just content by and for people of colour. It reminds me of the conversation that Sarah and I had about Never Have I Ever, Mindy Kaling's series earlier on in the year and, like, both of us feeling disappointed with that. But, like, that disappointment comes from there not being other things so we hinge all of these expectations on this one show that's meant to represent the South Asian parts of our identity which is totally unrealistic. Yeah and it's a problem that we have you know the the fact that we're even having this conversation means that there's not enough of it out there there's this comment that people always say when there's you know a a new piece of like queer media comes up and young people well People of all ages will say, I wish I had this. I wish I had this when I was younger. You get it with people who, you know, are all great shows, but like Gentified, The Family Law, um, and other shows we'll list later. And it's like, I, oh, Love, Simon is a big one for queer people. Ooh. Like, oh, I wish I had this like queer, like unapologetically queer rom-com when I was like 13. And it's like, they have existed. Mm. You just have to, okay, yeah. It's like, you have to kind of just look a little bit harder, like, do a little bit more research. Like, Degrassi had incredible queer um, storylines. Bend It Like Beckham, while not overtly queer, was queer. Like, in the same way that... Okay, I keep... I keep... (laughs) Comparing people to Frank Ocean, but, like, Bend It Like Beckham is like Frank Ocean. Like, it's queer. It knows it's queer. Okay. Interesting. Uh, Brandy Cinderella is also queer in that here is this multiracial relationship that, you know, subjects like white heteronormativity. Um, And this writer I followed a bit, Aaron Walker, said this in the same podcast I was talking about before. When people say, I wish I had this, what that really means is I want a big mainstream movie to look like me and not I want the queerer thing to look like me. And I understand, like, it's a yearning to be accepted by a white, heteronormative, mainstream gaze. Like, I want to be appealing to the masses because it makes my queerness palatable, which on a surface level is, like, absolutely not a bad thing. We deserve that, and that, you know, guarantees you safety, and we deserve to fit in where we want. But look to the people, look to the systems that are shaping that idea for you, and ask yourself if that's who you want to reflect. And the people who are usually doing that are usually white, cis, able-bodied men who are like commodifying this idea so they can, you know, sell you a TV show, sell you a movie. And in fact, they'll probably like mine you for ideas that will in the end like erase you. Yeah, that is bleak. It's so true, though. Uh, And I think while, yes, there have been examples in the past, Degrassi, etc., I think of Dance Academy. Oh, (laughs) my God. wasn't quite when we were growing up, but I was obsessed. Uh, And, you know, there were, like, pretty amazing queer storylines in that. Um, They have been around, but... I don't think that we can deny that right now there is just a a much higher calibre of them. There's more and more all the time. And at the core of them, the best ones are, you know, written by people who have experienced the things that they're writing Mm. about. Yeah. Okay, I'm kind of going to go against your statement just here. But We Are Who We Are is this new TV show. It's not, I mean, Luca Guadagnino, he wrote Call Me By A Name. I mean, he directed Call Me By A Name. He didn't write the book. Yeah. Um, but I just love the show. I don't Wait, know. It's so, so what's good. what's Luca's vibe? I don't know. Okay, he's just like an old dude. Oh, I don't okay. know. He's like an old white dude. Yeah, that's chill. The show I haven't seen it yet. I'm very excited to, and I got to say that the marketing they've they've got oh, me. Oh, they got you. Yeah. Look, I love it. 
Um, basically, it's uh, it centers around a group of teenagers who live on a fictional U.S. Army base in this like little slice of America, which is completely like American-style high school. There's a cinema in there, department store, all um, kind of confined in this small U.S. Army base in Chiogen, Italy, oh. and explores um, so many ideas in such like a fascinating setting. There's in wild parent-child relationships, uh, friendships, coming of age, you know, without spoiling too much. I mean, Chloe Sevigny is in it. Love her. Um, but the one thing I want to focus on is its representation of young people questioning their identity. And I don't want to say too much if you're spoiling um, the show, but the friendship uh, between Caitlin, who's a young black teen who grapples with her gender identity, and Fraser, who's this other teen exploring his sexuality and the way that they're friendship come relationship blossoms from this platonic come romantic and everything in between they're kind of holding each other up and exploring their respective journeys simultaneously and at the same time kind of pointing each other in the right direction or like propping each other up and be like oh have you ever thought about this or why don't you put on this shirt maybe this will work for what you want and it's such a beautiful understated nuanced kind of friendship that i have not seen represented in anything before like questioning you know it's question they're not like i'm trans or like i'm gay and it's like it's everything before that which and is, it may not even end up like that yeah. it just is everything before that Oh, that is, yeah, that's amazing. And kind of obviously not the same thing, but reminds me of Euphoria and why mm. that show was so incredible is that, like, central, you know, friendship and relationship is so refreshing to see. Like, it's these conversations that really kind of are the foundations of adolescence, like, and queer adolescence that we've never really seen on screen before. Yeah. Um, there's also this other film that I watched recently called Last Black Man in San Francisco and it has these beautiful representations of alternative kind of you know quote unquote chosen families which I know is a buzzword but makes sense for this movie um, and it centers around two friends Jimmy and Mont whose friendships uh, exist outside of the norm they live in the same room in the same house they do everything together they live with Mont's grandfather Jimmy is estranged from his entire family and what brings them together is Jimmy's relentless quest to reclaim the house that his grandfather built in like central San Francisco um, neither of them are explicitly queer, but they're essentially partners. Like they have this unspoken, it's asexual, but it's an undeniable chemistry and connection with each other that flies in the face of and really stands strong amongst the portrayals of masculinity, white gentrification, and the displacement of black people that just kind of gravitates around them and they kind of just make their way through it with each other. Oh. And it's a beautiful film. It looks stunning. I've heard the best things about it. I can't wait to see it. But yeah, again, the strength of this film in the same way that We Are Who We Are does um, lies in its nuance. And especially with this film, Last Black Man in San Francisco, not much of it, or not much um, overtly racist like occurrences happen, but it's this quiet, systemic, entrenched separation between black people and a sense of place in San Francisco, which just permeates the entire film, um, but matches it with this beauty. Like, they have this love for this place. Um, so, yeah, highly recommend that movie as well. Oh, so many things on my list oh. after this conversation, i got to say. That is all for Race Matters this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
I've had a great time. What about you, Darren? Yeah, I've had a good time too. <laughs> you can hear all episodes of Race Matters over at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.